I invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Mark, chapter 9. The book of Mark has been a great study for me personally. I hope you've gotten some things out of it. We've passed through the halfway mark and going into the, the end of the book here. But it's not the halfway mark of Jesus' ministry because uh, though Jesus' earthly ministry was about three and a half years long, at this point in the book of Mark where we are, he's got less than a year left before he goes to the cross. He's training 12 men to be his disciples, his followers, who ultimately will continue the ministry. We know one of those is a defector. Jesus knew that from the beginning as well. So really there's 11 guys here that are going to continue on the ministry of Jesus after he's gone. But there's much they need to learn. There's much they don't understand. There's things that Jesus does, things he says that they see it and they can't grasp it. And so here we are, all these years removed, we look back from a different vantage point because we have the totality of the Bible and all this information to work with that they didn't have. But when we study the book of Mark, we try to dive into their circumstance to see what is it they understood and what is it that Jesus needed them to catch at this moment. Because things are about to come un unraveled for the disciples a bit. Because Jesus keeps priming the pump for them to let them know that the day's coming. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be rejected by the elders. And he's going to be killed. And he's going to raise again on the third day. And he said that to them plainly and openly, but they didn't grasp it. In fact, as we've studied already in the book of Mark in the previous chapter, we got to see Peter in his great confession where he confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he bears witness of this. And, and matter of fact, Jesus told him, he said, this flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you, Peter. And so Peter has this incredible understanding now that he hadn't had before, makes this huge confession. And matter of fact, Jesus told him, he said, Peter, you are Peter. And upon this rock... I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he gives him an incredible charge and it doesn't make Peter the first pastor of the church or the first pope as is often said. Jesus was establishing with him the foundation of the apostles, the foundation of the, of the faith gospel that is going to be preached throughout these men. That the church is going to birth out of this and it will be the church that will carry forward the gospel message into the world. And then Jesus turns right around and explains to him in very plain language that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected, be killed, raise again. And remember what Peter said right after God has revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, oh no, not so, Lord, not you. You can't go there. You can't die. That's not a possibility. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was speaking was earthly things and he's not grasping, he didn't understand the scope of what Jesus needed to do as the Messiah, the Christ. He gets that part, but he doesn't get the fact that the Christ, the Messiah, has to die for the sin debt of humanity. That all these sacrifices of bulls and goats and calves and all these things through the years have only pushed back sin for one more year or one more day, but it has never satisfied the Father. And now Jesus comes in this body of flesh the Lord has given to him to come to this planet as a, on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which is lost, but to give his life a ransom for many that Jesus himself would become the sacrifice for our sin. 
Peter couldn't grasp that. What Peter knows is you are the Messiah and I get that that's true. Therefore, the kingdom needs to be established. The king is here, so let's establish the kingdom. And that's why you see all these conversations happening among the disciples. They get the idea Jesus is the king. He's here to get his kingdom established. And therefore, because we're closest to him, we're going to sort out the pecking order of how we're all going to sit on his right and left hand and get this all figured out. But Jesus says something to them in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, that I think is very important. And we're going to unpack what did Jesus mean by this today. Mark chapter 9, he said, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. There's some standing here that won't see death, but they're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, what does he mean? Does it mean like all these guys are going to live 2,000 plus years? Well, obviously not. But what is he describing, this kingdom of God? Well, I want to unpack that phrase for just a moment. There's two phrases in the Bible that look very similar, but they don't mean the same. There's the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. The term kingdom of heaven is repeated throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew is the apostle that writes to reveal Jesus as the king. So this makes real simple sense. Jesus is the king, and when the king is here, it's like heaven is here. So the kingdom of heaven is here. So when Jesus is teaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he starts teaching the Beatitudes and kind of the government then of what the kingdom is like because, well, the king is here. But what about when the king is not here? It won't be long and the king's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and raise again and then ascend up into heaven. So now what is the kingdom? Well, this is where the change of terminology takes place to see the kingdom of God. And this comes with definition because the book of Matthew is the only place you see the phrase kingdom of heaven. However, the phrase kingdom of God is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and several of the epistles. So it, it takes on a different shape. Well, what is it? In the book of Luke, chapter 17, says this. Now, when he asked, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. You can't see it. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed, the kingdom of God is what? Are you here? It's what? It's within you. It is within you. You can't see it because... It is within you. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's not physical, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember John chapter 3 when Jesus is meeting with one of the religious leaders, Nicodemus? And he told him and he said, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on to explain to him that this is a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. Now what's about to happen in the book of Mark is fascinating. Because Jesus is going to take Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And he's going to be transfigured in front of them. And they will see him in glory. And you have to ask the question, why did he do that? What's the point? These guys have a great understanding, or some understanding, I should say. I don't want to over-exaggerate their understanding. They have understanding of the kingdom of heaven, a physical, literal kingdom. The king is here. 
The idea of the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, the idea that the Spirit of God would come and be dwelling inside, no concept of that. And what Jesus is about to do is going to help them to see this, but they're still not going to understand it till much later. We have this incredible vantage point to look backwards on all of this and go, oh, okay, I totally get it. They didn't have that. So watch what Jesus is teaching here. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on, our, on earth can whiten them. He's revealing the glory. Jesus takes three witnesses. Because why? As Scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is to be established. Now, who else is present? In verse 4, it says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. These guys passed off the scene over a thousand years before. So now, how is this possible? Well, this is the point. You see now Jesus in his glory, and now you have Moses and Elijah show up on the scene. And who they represent is very important because Moses is the representation of the law of God, of course. But he is also a guy who died in faith. God buried him, took him up on a mountain, and no one knows where Moses was ever buried. But not Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet. As a great prophet, he was the prophet of prophets, in fact, is how he was known to be. But he didn't die. We see it in the book of 1 Kings. What happens? Elijah is scooped up and taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. That man didn't taste death. And Jesus is teaching something here. You see the one who died in faith, was buried, and you also see the one who escaped death and was swooped up and taken away. Well, this is interesting in light of what Jesus will teach after his resurrection. While he's still here, he's now resurrected. He meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to explain to these guys some things, and here's what he tells them. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus takes them on a Bible tour of Scripture and summarizes the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and all of this is about Him. So now you're up on this mountain and you're watching Jesus. He's transfigured in front of your face. You see Him in His glory with these guys who are the witnesses of, the, of Moses Himself and the prophets confirming something. It's obviously confirming this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the eternal Godhead right here in front of us. Why does any of this matter? Well, we get to see a glimpse of this for as the Apostle Paul later starts to unpack all of these ideas about the, the kingdom of God. Because what about for us now? As those who die in faith and we go to their funerals even now, well, what happens with them? Do they get to be a part of the glory of God? Well, what about us? that are alive and remain when Jesus shows up. How does that work out? Well, P Paul explains this exact truth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That means they have already passed away. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You know what happens when we get to see the glimpse of of one who dies in faith and one who is then captured and just taken into heaven when Jesus appears? It's, It's comforting truth. It's the comfort of knowing we will join together with the Lord, but with one another as people of faith, as the church of the living God. The kingdom of God coming together. And now the disciples are up on this mountain and they're watching all of this transfiguration happening. And they're still trying to piece it together because, well, the king is here. And they can't get this. But Jesus needs them to understand some things. And Verse 5 of Mark 9. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi... It's good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. I think we could all understand. Peter has no idea what to say. I'm seeing something, I don't understand it exactly. And so instead of standing there in silence, Peter had to say something. Well, this time frame is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles where Israel as a nation would remember back to when they were slaves in Egypt and were brought out of slavery by the blood of the Lamb on their route to the Promised Land. And while they lived in the wilderness, they lived in booths or tabernacles as it would be called. And so is the Feast of Tabernacle time. So Peter now doing what would seem if the king is here and the Elijah's here. Moses is here. Let's build tabernacle. It's the kingdom time. Let's do this thing. But that wasn't the point. In verse 7, a cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And this affirmation came down now and they were overshadowed in a cloud. There was no question this voice came from heaven. And what was the statement? It's the affirmation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Peter's already confessed that and knows that to be true. But what is it the Father said? Hear him. Listen to his words. Listen to what he's telling you. Now watch. As I meditated on this for days here, trying to figure out why in the world did Jesus do this? I get the, I see it, the knowledge of it. Okay, he went up on a mountain, transfigured. These two guys show up, Elijah and Moses. I get that. Why was this so important for Peter, James, and John to be there to see Jesus transfigured? Is it just because he can? No, Peter lets us know later what it is he understood and what it is that God was teaching in this moment that was critical. 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. So he's now giving the record of what happened. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Stop there. This is critical. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. What's the prophetic word? The prophetic word of Moses who wrote of Jesus. Even in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you never see that name Jesus show up there. But he's revealed over and over again. You see him as the rock. You see him as the lamb. You get to see his bloodshed. You see him as the sacrifices. We get to see him as the angel of the Lord, capital A. You get to see Jesus over and over revealed through the law of Moses. We see him revealed through the prophets who spoke specifically of his return and his coming and the Messiah and where he would be born and all the issues that would happen with him and over 300 prophecies specific to Jesus himself in the Old Testament. And this prophetic word is then confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter is affirming in 2 Peter chapter 1, what happened on that mountain confirmed the Word of God to us. And so now we come along, and all these years later, we hold this book dear, declaring we believe this to be the Word of God. That Jesus quotes over and over the books of the Old Testament. He declares them scripture. He called them scripture. Often day modern day writers about the Bible want to describe it as nothing but pithy sayings. Or a historical context. Or an allegory which is simply just pictures of something to be true but not really the truth in and of itself, not something to believe as it is written. And yet Peter says the scripture is not to be privately interpreted, the scripture interprets itself. In fact, Paul affirmed that truth and he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said that you compare scripture with scripture, let the Bible take care of itself. Because the Bible will interpret itself, the Bible will define itself. We don't have to try to figure out things. The Bible is here to figure it out for you. But the word is confirmed to us. The prophetic word is confirmed. Because remember what Jesus has been teaching his disciples? Not only is Jesus himself going to go to Jerusalem, be crucified and raise again. But he told them, remember what it means to be a disciple of Christ? If any man's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he describes then what true discipleship really looks like. It's going to come in the hands of, at times, suffering and persecution. It's going to come with difficulties and hardships. And you're going to stand as a Christ follower, faithful on his word. And matter of fact, you read the book of First and Second Peter. And what does Peter describe? How to suffer as a Christ follower. How to suffer with humility. But how the great grace of God is sufficient for every moment of every day. The manifold temptations that we have, God has manifold grace to match it. 
And Peter writes about that. Why could he do that? Because the, the prophetic word was confirmed to him. There was no question. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so now, they look around. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Moses and Elijah are not there. And verse 9 says, Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. This is the second time Jesus has spoken this very plainly. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be rejected by the elders. I'm going to be killed and rise again. And now he just tells them he's going to raise from the dead again, but they still like, I don't get that. Why? Because their mind is fixed on the king is here, the kingdom is here. And they can't see this kingdom of God that is yet to come when the king is physically not present, but the spirit of the living God will then come to this earth, indwell the heart of believers, and God's kingdom is alive and well. Matter of fact, right here in this room today, as those who are Christ followers can attest and bear witness of that truth. That the very peace of God, the joy of God, the righteousness of God, the power of God that dwells within you, that enables you then and empowers you to do what? To live the life of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. It's the very fruit of the Spirit of God. That is the power. That is what Jesus was describing as the kingdom of God will come with power. And remember what Jesus told them? In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, he, he let them know that after the Spirit of God has come upon you, you're going to receive power. Power. And that power is going to enable you to be a witness. And you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And God's going to give you power to be his witness in his, of the gospel message and the witness of Christ. And that's what he does in our lives. As the kingdom of God now present in the spiritual sense here. But the king's not here physically. But they questioned what this meant and could not grasp. But he told them, don't tell anybody until after he's raised from the dead. And so it would be apparent they did not. But later, you watch in the book of John, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, you remember, it's Peter and John go blast into that grave, right? To see if he really did rise. And they get there, and all of a sudden they understood, oh, you know what, he told us, he told us about this. And now they begin to understand, and their minds begin to grasp what he was teaching. And then, man, these guys become preachers of the gospel and now you see the church form and multiply and God's witness on the earth begins to multiply as well. In verse 11 of Mark 9, it says, And they asked him, saying, Well then, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. Well, how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And he's asking him, Okay, you guys get the Elijah part. So here, here's what the prophecy said. In the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, spoke of Elijah coming, a forerunner coming before the Messiah, who would put some things in order. 
But then this Messiah comes, and now Jesus describes, but the scripture also describes the Messiah being mistreated and must suffer much. So you catch the part about the forerunner, you're missing the part about the Messiah and the suffering. In verse 13, he says, But I say to you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it's written of him. Mark didn't record this, but Matthew did. That in Matthew chapter 17, it says, Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And they're like, oh, I see what just happened there. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, the forerunner, the prophet, before the Messiah came. Oh, so here you are. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. John the Baptist is the forerunner who prepared the way before you. And it's like now they understand that. But here's where the struggle still is at. Because the king is present, they can't see yet the fact that the king is going to go suffer and die and rise again. They still don't grasp that. That will come later. But the reason this is important, you're thinking, okay, Dwayne, you just unpacked all kinds of neat stuff. That's cool. What does this have to do with me? Well, first, are you as confident in the word that the word of God is confirmed? That the prophets and Moses and the writings of the Old Testament, the scripture now confirms that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Many in this room would say, amen. Yes, I believe that to be true. I believe that with all of my heart. Matter of fact, I, I know that I am saved because I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I want to affirm to all of us today, maybe that you've never come to the spot where by faith you trust Jesus Christ. Let me just assure to you that someone who was up on a mountain saw Jesus changed into his glory. Here's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. After hearing and seeing all of that says that we have a more sure word of prophecy in a written book right here in our hands today than hearing the audible voice of God on top of a mountain. And this book declares to me that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and by placing my faith in Him, I know that I am saved for all of eternity. And that when I die, if I die, I am going to be translated right into the presence of God. I know that. I also know that Jesus may come back this afternoon and just take me away like he did Elijah. Praise God if that happens. Either way, either way, I know I'm with the Lord because I've placed my faith in Christ. But not only that, I know that my sin is forgiven. The debt that I owe God that I could never repay on my own is paid for in full by Jesus Christ the Lord. So I am secure in that. I know I belong to him. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm redeemed. Do you know that? That's what the word affirms. It's, it's what it confirms. But not only that, this very text looks forward to something else. Another prophecy. Many prophecies in the scripture are double fulfillment. And the reason why is the Old Testament prophets and Moses and those guys, they all wrote of the Messiah coming to set up his kingdom. The problem is that he was rejected as the king. And so he's going to come again. 
And so in anticipation of his next arrival, so then what do you do with the Elijah and the Moses? I thought they were a big deal. Are they not anymore? Well, no, you get to pick the story up again in Revelation, but because before Jesus comes again, the witnesses are back. Is it those two guys literally, physically? Well, I don't know. Or is it in the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of Moses? Well, I don't know. But I'm going to show you this in Revelation chapter 11 that we can look at the confirmation of the word once again. Revelation 11, then I was given a reed. This is John the Beloved talking. By the way, it's the same John who was up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. He's the same one that was exiled to the island of Patmos because he's a follower of Christ and a preacher of the gospel. He's the same one that, as a martyr dying on this isle of Patmos, but they were terrified of John because it was John that According to Fox's book of martyrs, they wanted to get rid of him because he preached Jesus. And so they dipped him in boiling oil to kill him. But he didn't die. Matter of fact, he didn't even suffer a wound. Well, they didn't know what to do with him. They were terrified of him. So they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. And while he was in exile, the Lord revealed to him some things that are to come. That we now read from the book of revelation the things that we should anticipate he was given this read and he said the angel stood saying rise and measure the temple of god the altar and those who worship there but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months and i will give power to my two witnesses here we go my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth and ashes. That's 42 months in case you're keeping track. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Don't you wish you had that power? And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Verse 6. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. You know, I know a guy in scripture that did that. His name happens to be Elijah, who prayed that God would shut off the rain of heaven and God shut it off. And he asked for God to turn it back on and God turned it back on again. So I see this. And then they also have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. I know another guy that did that. His name is Moses. And so you have these two witnesses that show up again, just like we had them on the Mount of Transfiguration, confirming the word. Now they're going to confirm it again. These two witnesses are confirming to the world, the Messiah is coming, the second coming of Christ. This is huge, guys. I hope you're as excited as I am. So, verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast, he's the bad guy, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. The whole world gets to see this. Well, how's that possible? Well, I, I guess through newscast. It's not real hard to figure that out this day. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Make merry, send gifts to one another. It'll be like Christmas. Because these two prophets were tormented, those who dwell on the earth. We're going to celebrate. Finally, these two guys are done. But no, they're not done. Because now after three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them. They stood on their feet and a great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, 
Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. And you watch these two witnesses who died and are now captured and taken away to be with the Lord in glory. Now why do we look at all this today? The Lord chose to transfigure himself before the disciples to confirm the word of the prophets that they might know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And standing in this confirmation and this confidence that they will have, after all the scene unveils and Jesus is crucified, raises again, ascends up into heaven, these men standing on the affirmation and confirmation of the word of God will preach, will suffer, will be persecuted much, and continue to go forward in that manner. Why? With such conviction, believing without question, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because all of the Scripture affirms this to be true, and I've seen it with my own eyes, I've heard it with my own ears. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, and we have the, the complete Word. We have the Old Testament, book of Moses and prophets and Psalms, speaking of our Savior. We get to see Jesus' life in the, in the Gospels. We get to see the ones who lived on after establishing the church to where here we are now as the witnesses of Christ on this planet, those who by faith receive Him. And then what do we do? We live a life that's worthy of the Gospel because of the power of God living in us. It's not because we muster up enough energy to do it. It's because we yield ourselves to God and say, God, it's not my life, it's yours. And we stand in the confirmation of that. And we live our lives in light of the second coming of Christ, knowing that our Savior is coming back. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And yes, He will establish a kingdom on this earth, and all of His enemies will be put down. So if you live your life completely stressed out of your mind and worried about the next election that's coming up and whether it's going to be red or blue or purple or who cares what color, and you're all frustrated about that, Hey, the king is coming back. And when he comes back, he'll set it all in order. And the enemy of God, all the enemies of God will be put down. And things will be made right. And the sovereign God who's been in control of all of humanity and history since you can see it from the beginning of time, he's still in control. And he's confirmed his word to us. And so today, my question to you is, do you believe it to be true? Is it settled in your soul? Because when it's not settled, it's why we get so uptight and so anxious and so frustrated and we want everything different than it is, we lose our perspective of who's the true king. We get this idea we want everything to be heaven on earth now. Well, the king's not here. In a spiritual sense, we are in the hands and feet of Jesus. But guys, we're looking forward to the day when the king shows up again and establishes his kingdom and sits upon the throne in Jerusalem and will be worshipped for who he is as the King of kings and Lord of lords. My question is to you, all of us today, do you know him? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Without question, you know you're saved today. Believing the truth of Scripture and what the Word of God says, living with the confidence, I know who my king is, and I know he's coming back.